Dear listeners, are you tired of the endless cycle of fad diets and extreme measures? It's time to wake up to a better weight loss solution with Robody. As someone who's been through the ups and downs of weight loss, I know firsthand the challenge of trying to find what will stick. That's why if I qualified for Robody today, I'd jump at the chance for a scientifically backed program that supports long-term success. With Robody, you'll gain access to the most popular weight loss shots on the market, paired with personalized lifestyle changes. Over 200,000 people have already chosen Row to help them lose weight. Say goodbye to the roller coaster of weight loss dreams and hello to sustainable, real results with Robody. Go to row.co slash snoozecast. Sign up today and you'll pay just $99 for your first month and $145 a month after that. Medication costs are separate. That's ro.co slash snoozecast. designed to help you fall asleep. Find us at snoozecast.com, and if you enjoy our show, please share us with a friend. This episode is brought to you by The Living Infinite. Tonight, we'll read the next part to 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, a classic science fiction adventure novel by French writer Jules Verne. In the last episode, Captain Nemo and Professor Aranax smoke seaweed cigars together as they chat in the saloon. Nemo explains that the Nautilus is the perfect ship, both due to its electrical power and the fact that, traveling below the surface of the water, it is unimpeded by things like storms, just as he is rich enough to be unimpeded from financial constraints. As captain, builder, and engineer of the vessel, Nemo has utmost faith in it. Let's get cozy. Close your eyes. Relax your body into the softness of your bed. explored abyss. The obscurity of the saloon showed to advantage the brightness outside, and we looked out as if this pure crystal had been the glass of an immense aquarium. For two whole hours, an aquatic army escorted the Nautilus. During their games, their bounds, 
while rivaling each other in beauty, brightness, and velocity, I distinguished the banded mullet, marked by a double line of black. The round-tailed goby, of a white color, with violet spots on the back, the Japanese scombrus, a beautiful mackerel of those seas with a blue body and silvery head, the brilliant azures whose name alone defies description, some banded spares with variegated fins of blue and yellow, the woodcocks of the seas, some specimens of which attain a yard in length, Japanese salamanders, spider lampreys, serpents six feet long with eyes small and lively, and a huge mouth bristling with teeth, with many other species. Our imagination was kept at its height. Interjections followed quickly on each other. Ned named the fish, and Conseil classed them. I was in ecstasies with the vivacity of their movements and the beauty of their forms. Never had it been given to me to surprise these animals, alive and at liberty, in their natural element. I will not mention all the varieties which passed before my dazzled eyes, all the collection of the seas of China and Japan. These fish, more numerous than the birds of the air, came, attracted no doubt, by the brilliant focus of the electric light. Suddenly, there was daylight in the saloon. The iron panels closed again, and the enchanting vision disappeared. But for a long time, I dreamt on till my eyes fell on the instruments hanging on the partition. The compass still showed the course to be east-northeast. The manometer indicated a pressure of five atmospheres, equivalent to a depth of 25 fathoms, and the electric log gave a speed of 15 miles an hour. I expected Captain Nemo, but he did not appear. The clock marked the hour of five. Ned Land and Conseil returned to their cabin, and I retired to my chamber. My dinner was ready. It was composed of turtle soup made of the most delicate hawksbills. A surmullet served with puff paste, the liver of which prepared by itself was most delicious. And fillets of the Emperor Holcanthus, the savor of which seemed to me superior even to salmon. I passed the evening reading, writing, and thinking. Then sleep overpowered me, and I stretched myself on my couch and slept profoundly whilst the Nautilus was gliding rapidly through the current of the Black River. Chapter 14 A Note of Invitation the next day was the 9th of November. I awoke after a long sleep of 12 hours. 
Conseil came, according to custom, to know how I had passed the night and to offer his services. He had left his friend the Canadian sleeping like a man who had never done anything else all his life. I let the worthy fellow chatter as he pleased, without caring to answer him. I was preoccupied by the absence of the captain during our sitting of the day before and hoping to see him today. As soon as I was dressed, I went into the saloon. It was deserted. I plunged into the study of the shelled treasures hidden behind the glasses. I reveled also in great herbals filled with the rarest marine plants, which, although dried up, retained their lovely colors. Amongst these precious hydrophytes, I remarked some delicate ceramides with scarlet tints, some fan-shaped agari, and some tabulae like flat mushrooms, which at one time used to be classed as zoophytes. In short, a perfect series of algae. The whole day passed without my being honored by a visit from Captain Nemo. The panels of the saloon did not open. Perhaps they did not wish us to tire of these beautiful things. The course of the Nautilus was east-northeast, her speed twelve knots, the depth below the surface between twenty-five and thirty fathoms. The next day, 10th of November, the same desertion, the same solitude. I did not see one of the ship's crew. Ned and Conseil spent the greater part of the day with me. They were astonished at the inexplicable absence of the captain. Was this singular man ill? Had he altered his intentions with regard to us? After all, as Conseil said, we enjoyed perfect liberty. We were delicately and abundantly fed. Our host kept to his terms of the treaty. We could not complain. And indeed, the singularity of our fate reserved such wonderful compensation for us that we had no right to accuse it as yet. That day, I commenced the journal of these adventures, which has enabled me to relate them with more scrupulous exactitude and minute detail. Made from the Zostra Marina 11th November, early in the morning, the fresh air spreading over the interior of the Nautilus told me that we had come to the surface of the ocean to renew our supply of oxygen. I directed my steps to the central staircase and mounted the platform. It was six o'clock. The weather was cloudy, the sea gray but calm, scarcely a billow. Captain Nemo, whom I hoped to meet, would he be there? I saw no one else but the steersman imprisoned in his glass cage. 
seated upon the projection formed by the hull of the pinnace, I inhaled the salt breeze with delight. By degrees the fog disappeared under the action of the sun's rays. The radiant orb rose from behind the eastern horizon. The sea flamed under its glance like a train of gunpowder. The clouds scattered in the heights were colored with lively tints of beautiful shades and numerous mare's tails which betokened wind for the day. But what was wind to this nautilus which tempests could not frighten? I was admiring this joyous rising of the sun, so life-giving, when I heard steps approaching the platform. I was prepared to salute Captain Nemo, but it was his second, whom I had already seen on the captain's first visit, who appeared. He advanced on the platform, not seeming to see me. With his powerful glass to his eye, he scanned every point of the horizon with great attention. This examination over, he approached the panel and pronounced a sentence in exactly these terms. I have remembered it for every morning it was repeated under exactly the same conditions. It was thus worded. Natrin, Resbach, Lorni, Virch. What it meant I could not say. These words pronounced the second descended. I thought that the Nautilus was about to return to its submarine navigation. I regained the panel and returned to my chamber. Five days sped thus, without any change in our situation. Every morning I mounted the platform. The same phrase was pronounced by the same individual, but Captain Nemo did not appear. I had made up my mind that I should never see him again when, on the 16th November, on returning to my room with Ned and Conseil, I found upon my table a note addressed to me. I opened it impatiently. It was written in bold, clear hand, the characters rather pointed, recalling the German type. The note was worded as follows. 16th of November, 1867. To Professor Aranax, on board the Nautilus, Captain Nemo invites Professor Aranax to a hunting party, which will take place tomorrow morning in the forests of the island of Crespo. He hopes that nothing will prevent the professor from being present, and he will, with pleasure, see him joined by his companions. Captain Nemo, commander of the Nautilus. A hunt? exclaimed Ned. And in the forests of the island of Crespo, added Conseil. Well, then the gentleman is going on terra firma, replied Ned Land. That seems to me to be clearly indicated, said I, reading the letter once more. Well, we must accept, said the Canadian, but once more on dry ground, we shall know what to do. Indeed, I shall not be sorry to eat a piece of fresh venison. 
without seeking to reconcile what was contradictory between Captain Nemo's manifest aversion to islands and continents and his invitation to hunt in a forest, I contented myself with replying, let us first see where the island of Crespo is. I consulted the planisphere, and in 32 degrees, 40 minutes north latitude, and 157 degrees, 50 minutes west longitude, I found a small island recognized in 1801 by Captain Crespo and marked in the ancient Spanish maps as Roca de la Plata, the meaning of which is the silver rock. We were then about 1,800 miles from our starting point, and the course of the Nautilus, a little changed, was bringing it back towards the southeast. I showed this little rock lost in the midst of the North Pacific to my companions. If Captain Nemo does sometimes go on dry ground, said I, he at least chooses desert islands. Ned Land shrugged his shoulders without speaking, and Conseil, and he left me. After supper, which was served by the steward, mute and impassive, I went to bed, not without some anxiety. The next morning, the 17th of November, on awakening, I felt that the Nautilus was perfectly still. I dressed quickly and entered the saloon. Captain Nemo was there, waiting for me. He rose, bowed, and asked me if it was convenient for me to accompany him. As he made no allusion to his absence during the last eight days, I did not mention it and simply answered that my companions and myself were ready to follow him. We entered the dining room where breakfast was served. Monsieur Aranax, said the captain, pray, share my breakfast without ceremony. We will chat as we eat. For though I promised you a walk in the forest, I did not undertake to find hotels there. So breakfast as a man who will most likely not have his dinner till very late. I did honor to the repast. It was composed of several kinds of fish. Our drink consisted of pure water, to which the captain added some drops of a fermented liquor. Extracted by the Kamschata method, from a seaweed known under the name of Rodiminina palamita. Captain Nemo ate at first without saying a word. Then he began, Sir, when I proposed to you to hunt in my submarine forest of Crespo, you evidently thought me mad. Sir, you should never judge lightly of any man. But Captain, believe me, be kind enough to listen, and you will then see whether you have any cause to accuse me of folly and contradiction. I listen. You know as well as I do, Professor, that man can live underwater, providing he carries with him a sufficient supply of breathable air. In submarine works, the workman, clad in an impervious dress, with his head in a metal helmet, receives air from above by means of forcing pumps and regulators. That is a diving apparatus, said I. Just so, but under these conditions, 
the man is not at liberty. He is attached to the pump, which sends him air through an India rubber tube. And if we were obliged to be thus held to the Nautilus, we could not go far. And the means of getting free? I asked. It is to use the Hokerol apparatus, invented by two of your own countrymen, which I have brought to perfection for my own use, and which will allow you to risk yourself under these new physiological conditions without any organ whatever suffering. It consists of a reservoir of thick iron plates in which I store the air under a pressure of 50 atmospheres. This reservoir is fixed on the back by means of braces, like a soldier's knapsack. Its upper part forms a box in which the air is kept by means of a bellows and therefore cannot escape unless at its normal tension. In the apparatus such as we use, two India rubber pipes leave this box and join a sort of tent which holds the nose and mouth. One is to introduce fresh air, the other to let out the fowl, and the tongue closes one or the other according to the wants of the respirator. But I, in encountering great pressures at the bottom of the sea, was obliged to shut my head like that of a diver in a ball of copper. And it is to this ball of copper that the two pipes, the inspirator and the expirator, open. Perfectly, Captain Nemo, but the air that you carry with you must soon be used when it only contains 50% of oxygen it is no longer fit to breathe. Right. But I told you, Monsieur Aranax, that the pumps of the Nautilus allow me to store the air under considerable pressure, and on those conditions the reservoir of the apparatus can furnish breathable air for nine or ten hours. I have no further objections to make, I answered. I will only ask you one thing, Captain. How can you light your road at the bottom of the sea? with the Rumkorf apparatus, Monsieur Aranax. One is carried on the back. The other is fastened to the waist. It is composed of a Bunsen pile, which I do not work with bichromate of potash, but with sodium. A wire is introduced which collects the electricity produced and directs it towards a particularly made lantern. In this lantern is a spiral glass which contains a small quantity of carbonic gas. When the apparatus is at work, this gas becomes luminous, giving out a white and a continuous light. Thus provided, I can breathe and I can see. Captain Nemo, to all my objections you make such crushing answers that I dare no longer doubt. But if I am forced to admit these apparatuses, I must be allowed some reservations with regard to the gun I am to carry. But it is not a gun for powder, answered the captain. 
then it is an air gun? Doubtless. How would you have me manufacture gunpowder on board? Besides, I added, to fire underwater in a medium 855 times denser than the air, we must conquer very considerable resistance. That would be no difficulty. There exist guns, according to Fulton, perfected in England by Philip Coles and Burley, in France by Fursey, and in Italy by Landy, which are furnished with a peculiar system of closing which can fire under these conditions. But I repeat, having no powder, I use air under great pressure, which the pumps of the Nautilus furnish abundantly. But this air must be rapidly used. Well, have I not my reservoir which can furnish it at need? A tap is all that is required. Besides, Monsieur Aranax, you must see yourself that, during our submarine hunt, we can spend but little air and but few balls. But it seems to me that in this twilight and in the midst of this fluid, which is very dense compared with the atmosphere, shots could not go far nor easily prove mortal. Sir, on the contrary, with this gun every blow is mortal, and however lightly the animal is touched, it falls as if struck by a thunderbolt. Why? Because the balls sent by this gun are not ordinary balls, but little cases of glass, of which I have a large supply. These glass cases are covered with a case of steel and weighted with a pellet of lead. They are real laden bottles into which the electricity is forced to a very high tension. With the slightest shock, they are discharged. And the animal perishes. I must tell you that these cases are size number four and that the charge for any ordinary gun would be ten. I will argue no longer, I replied, rising from the table. I have nothing left me but to take my gun. At all events, I will go where you go. Captain Nemo then led me aft, and in passing before Ned's and Conseil's cabin, I called my two companions, who followed immediately. We then came to a kind of cell near the machinery room in which we were to put on our walking dress. Chapter 15 A Walk on the Bottom of the Sea This cell was, to speak correctly, the arsenal and wardrobe of the Nautilus. A dozen diving apparatuses hung from the partition waiting our use. Ned Land, on seeing them, showed evident repugnance to dress himself in one. But my worthy Ned, the forests of the island of Crespo are nothing but submarine forests. 
good, said the disappointed harpooner, who saw his dreams of fresh meat fade away. And you, Monsieur Aranax, are you going to dress yourself in those clothes? There is no alternative, Master Ned. As you please, sir, replied the harpooner, shrugging his shoulders. But as for me, unless I am forced, I will never get into one. No one will force you, Master Ned, said Captain Nemo. Is Conseil going to risk it? asked Ned. I follow wherever he goes, replied Conseil. At the captain's call, two of the ship's crew came to help us to dress in these heavy and impervious clothes made of India rubber without seam and constructed expressly to resist considerable pressure. One would have thought it a suit of armor, both supple and resisting. This suit formed trousers and waistcoat. The trousers were finished off with thick boots, weighted with heavy leaden soles. The texture of the waistcoat was held together by bands of copper, which crossed the chest, protecting it from the great pressure of the water and leaving the lungs free to act. The sleeves ended in gloves, which in no way restrained the movement of the hands. There was a vast difference noticeable between these consummate apparatuses and the old cork breastplates, jackets, and other contrivances in vogue during the 18th century. Captain Nemo and one of his companions a sort of Hercules who must have possessed great strength. Conseil and myself were soon enveloped in the dresses. There remained nothing more to be done but to enclose our heads in the metal box. But before proceeding to this operation, I asked the captain's permission to examine the guns we were to carry. One of the Nautilus men gave me a simple one, the butt end of which, made of steel, hollow in the center, was rather large. It served as a reservoir for compressed air. Captain Nemo, said I, this arm is perfect. I only ask to be allowed to try it. But how shall we gain the bottom of the sea? At this moment, Professor, the Nautilus is stranded in five fathoms and we have nothing to do 
but to start. But how shall we get off? You shall see.